Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast features Dr. Nirban Mahantni of Seven Investing and myself, Owen Raskovich. This is the first episode we've gone live straight to Facebook. We recorded this on Friday afternoon, September 17th, 2021. We talk about a few factors. I challenged Nirban to tell me his three favorite factors for picking stocks, and I share three of my own. And then we take some questions from the live audience who joined us. And of course, we talk about A2 milk versus treasury wine, a little bit about China and a few other things like Apple's product releases. All that and more on this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. How are you going? I'm doing great. How are you? Very good, mate. Very good. Um, 
we, the way we usually start these shows is I ask you what you've been working on lately. So mm-hmm. how about we start with that? And then if anyone's watching us or listening to us on a live stream on YouTube, you can say g'day. And you can even ask us some questions if you want. And yeah, let's get the ball rolling, mate. What have you been working on? Oh, well, you know, um, it's getting close to the first of the month, right? So almost 17th. Um, yeah, so working on recommendations, you know, locked in the recommendation, going to write, do a presentation for it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'll see. Uh, can, can, you, can, can you give us anything? Or, can you, or is it too early? Um, I, well, let me see what I can do. Okay, so let's call it a very interesting company as all my recommendations are. Um, this time I'm going small, actually. I'm small. going small. I'm going small. Okay. Smaller than uh, my last trick. How's that for a clue? Okay, smaller than the last one. Okay, so if you follow Doc's research, you will know what is smaller than that number. So um, yeah. I love, I've got to admit, I love, I love last month's pick. Um, I won't give too much away, That's but um, yeah, it's a good one. And it's a promising thematic which underlies that company. So uh, I was very happy to see you, you recommend it. Um, and I think we can just, we can probably leave it there. So what, outside of that, I noticed that you you interviewed um, Danielle Ekuba. Oh, yes, I, yes, yes. I um, it was fantastic, you know, lovely chatting with her. She has like decades of experience, right? So, it, you know, kind of makes me feel like, okay, maybe my experience is not that much. And, um, uh, but, you know, what she has these beautiful stories that she can tell and uh, it bundles all this experience, talks about her books and things like that. It does, does all of this with so much, you know, humility and, uh, you, you know, like no gloating, no nothing, just, you know, very straight talking. So I actually enjoyed the conversation um, you know, I, I thought our wavelengths were very similar, which which I really enjoyed. You know, she, you, many of our thinking, the way we think about some of these things, as as you know, are, is very similar. Plus, uh, if, if people have not read her book, the the Shapelicity Two, uh, then the first chapter is called uh, you know Ford versus Tesla. <laughs> and who won? So, <laughs> well, uh, that's. <laughs> Let's say you should read the chapter, um, and uh, yeah, and, and there's a there's a beautiful story about why this chapter is called that, which relates to the previous book. Um, so you know, again, uh, I'd say you know when the that podcast comes out on the twenty third, um, seven investing podcast. But I'd say that you know people should tune into it, and if nothing, they will um, learn a fair bit from it. And uh, it, it was a very enjoyable conversation. Let's put it that way. How does it work with the Seven Investing podcast? Do you source your own guests, and do you try and make them Australian centric, or are you are you picking anyone? No, so I pick. Oh, well, I pick people that I find interesting, and I just reach out to them. Many people say no. Mm-hmm. Um, so many I people say no. You know, here's a, Oh, so people say no. Well, famous people say no. So I reached out to Gene Munster at uh, Loop Ventures, right? And uh, what is really cool, though, and I'll say this because this is really cool, is they actually replied. 
<laughs> which I think is really cool. I said, you know, hey, you know, thanks for the invitation. This is not the response that you want to hear, but, you know, we're going to decline their full admission. And I think that is really cool, very high class. Um, yeah, we, we reach out to some companies as well. So uh, Simon and Steve interviewed uh, the, the Rocket Lab. Uh, I did see that, know? yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, that's from down our corner of the park. We can claim them to be ours almost. Um, yeah, so I think sometimes we, you know, uh, we will land up with a with a heavy hitter. Sometimes we'll land up with a very interesting people like Danielle. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I'd interviewed uh, Mayu Tucker, who's a CFA based. He works for um, he works for Zacks in in oh, right. Washington. And, you know, he and I had a long conversation. It was mostly about Tesla. It's like an hour and a half long conversation. But uh, he's, again, if you, if, you know, if, you, if you haven't seen that podcast, you should see it. And if you don't follow Mayur Thakur on Twitter, then you should. Because I think he's a brilliant investor. He's got a great framework for investing. Shares a lot of, you know, beautiful nuggets, really useful nuggets that, you know, it's like free research that people are doing on companies that might interest you and, and, mm. and, and they're doing very high quality work. So, mm. yeah, I think it's pretty, we're pretty fortunate, aren't we? When we have when we're podcast hosts to be able to interview some really interesting people. I find that um, I love listening to podcasts, but also the interview process is also really unique in itself because you, you kind of, you curate the podcast as well while you go through and in doing so, kind of reinforce that knowledge that you've learned on your guests. So when you go back and you look at the source material, you learn things for yourself and then you talk to them about it. And you actually, it's a proper conversation where they're the expert in something and you can actually get ideas out of them. It's a really enviable spot to be. And I sometimes have to pinch myself that I get to talk to these people. I don't know if you get that feeling at all. Well, you do a fantastic job because, you know, when I was a guest on your podcast, I thought, whoa, this guy actually prepares. <laughs> he, he not only prepares, he actually digs deep. So, yeah, uh, I think you're a great interviewer. Uh, I'm not that good. So my my question's kind of not, not up, to that, up to that mark. <laughs> so if, so if, if, the interview is not, if the interview is not that good, it's not the host's it's It's not the guest's fault. It's the host's fault. The host was just not that good. So, yeah, but yeah. Uh, interviews are really fun. It's really an opportunity to meet new people too. Like, you know, people that, you know, I'd never spoken with Danielle before. So this is a great opportunity. Just, again, you find people that are interesting and you can share ideas with. That's 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 great. Yeah, for sure. Um, we just had some people jump in the chat and say, Amitesh says, we'd love to get Anuban and Owen's view on Sentinel-1 and Live360 if possible. Um, maybe we can tackle that towards the end. I don't know if you know those companies very well. But um, we've got a few things planned for today's live stream. Before you go, you didn't tell us what you do have done. Oh, I haven't, part been, of the question. I, haven't, I haven't been doing much. <laughs> the reason why we were late to the live stream today is because I don't, I don't know if anyone can hear this, but it sounds like Armageddon around me. I wouldn't be surprised if during this podcast, a tree, a gum tree falls on my living room because it is so windy that all the power's gone out. And I'm sitting here with my laptop my phone trying to organize this live stream with you. And anyway, so what have I been working on last week? Basically um, the equivalent of that in, in life, um, just trying to get things sorted on the back end for us logistically. Um, every quarter we do a big roundup of all of the small caps that we've recommended. And so we've got the two rockets programs. We've got the Apollo program and we've got the beyond program, but obviously both named after um missions to space, actual missions, obviously the Apollo program, but beyond was also one that flew more recently. And um, we 
we identify 10 small caps. And then every three months after we've done, released our initial reports, we do a quarterly roundup. And I, to be honest, as, as an analyst and as an advisor on these services, I actually find it a lot easier to do quarterly reviews as opposed to constantly coming up with new ideas and, and, and trying to kind of be on that treadmill, just have 10 picks straight up, which I think our members really like, and then provide big quarterly reviews. So they're going out today and um, it's taken basically a week to put them together. We do some videos and podcasts and, and throw in CEO interviews and what have you with that. So yeah, I was actually, actually, there's this, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a parody account on Twitter, which I'm going to give a shout out to. And it's got, I think it's called finance people who pat themselves on the back. And um, I did one of these earlier on where I, I showed our, our track record for one of the programs, um, which is the Apollo program, the first one. And um, the average return on our Apollo program, that's just a mean average return, which I know it's not, you know, whatever, um, was 155% in 15 months. Um, and that's just a, brilliant, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's pretty good. Right. Oh, not, well, yeah. that's not just pretty good. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and the thing is, I always say to our members that I, I'm not, definitely I'm not one to gloat and to boast about it, but because I don't think that um, track records necessarily, at least very short ones, that's only 15 months. It's pretty much, in my opinion, it's who knows, like that, that's more luck than skill in that. Um, but I often find that when it comes to messaging around track records is probably more important than the actual track record itself. So um, I always say that performance is, is kind of passing or transient and process is permanent. So if you buy into the process, that's the thing that you should be marrying yourself to, not the past performance. And um, yeah, I'm just really lucky. We've had some really good outliers and we've had some really bad companies. So I can, like I can tell you one of the ones that didn't go really well, which was, um, which is quick fee. So ASX listed QFE is the ticket code. And that's um, it's basically a tiny um, payments company, like a gateways company that used to do, it does loan origination and, and that type of thing for US accounting firms and law firms. That's down 70%. So I don't know if you feel this, but when you do these, when you have these membership services, it's really hard to stomach those big losses. Um, not from you know, an intellectual perspective from your members' perspective because you kind of feel like you let them down. And so that's kind of what I dwell on anyway. But, you know, off to a good start. We'd rather have runs on the board than not have runs on the board. But, um, yeah, that's what I've been working on. And it's been exciting. So, and hey, who doesn't love space? You know, space is taking off. I was actually saying to someone, here's a question for you. If you were, if you were 18 again and, and you've just come out of high school and you've got a really good score from your high school would you consider st studying something or something adjacent to the space economy and that type of thing yeah like uh, i think robotics and uh yeah space would be definitely interesting i think that those are the things that have very high value right now so a lot of engineering kids are going to be learning space and robotics you know I think robotics mm. is really cool as well. Robotics and space. I think they, they both sort of go hand in hand in many ways. So, mm. yeah. It'll be hard think, to get in as well. Yeah. <laughs> They'll do that most but, competitive ones. Oh, yeah. But, I, for example, for those that don't know, um, 
Inspiration4 launched this week, which is a it's a SpaceX mission um, which has four civilians, although two of them are qualified pilots and you know very um, well advanced in that respect. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a three day mission around the around the world. Three, I think it's three, yeah, three times. And um, it went went up this week, and there was a Netflix Netflix doco with it. And you know, we saw we talked last month about or the month before about um, Virgin Galactic and then Blue Origin. I just feel, you know, there, there's a ser- there's been a serious step change in terms of the awareness of what's going on in space. I, I feel like over the past one to two years, and I think that's really exciting. So if I was a young person looking for a job in a really exciting industry, competitive as you say, um, I might be looking at something like that because I'm thinking of tailwinds, and that's a pretty big structural tailwind. I know you guys cover a lot of this at Seven Investing, so I'm not reinventing the wheel here, but yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, okay, mate. So we've got some topics. We've got to, we're going to, we did a survey. Um, I did a survey, just, I don't know if you saw it, but I did a survey in the live chat. And um, the survey was, which stocks do you want us to talk about today? And I gave four options. I said, uh, Apple is the first one. Apple was the second one. Apple was the third one. And Apple was the fourth one. And surprisingly, Apple won with a vote of 67%. So um, that fantastic result. So it looks like we're going to talk about Apple for a minute. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> and uh, mate, I might throw it over to you because you had this tweet out um, where you talked about some of the products and kind of what it actually means longer term. Um, so I'll just throw it over to you. Yeah, so like, you know, like this was the, what I call the S launch, right? So the the 12 was sort of the main launch that happened, I think last year. Mm. And and then this was sort of, they've sort of gotten rid of the S nomenclature, but it's now called the iPhone 13. Now I looked at the lineup and said, ah, nothing really special, significant enough that, you know, even a crazy person like me is going to, you know, want to get the iPhone 13. So I'm not getting the iPhone 13. And you watch you know 20% more real estate and stuff like that you know last year had the you know the uh, sort of the oxygen saturation level measurements and things like that you know altimeter mm. and things like that no, there's nothing really big this year right uh, they've got some fitness plus things so but you know this is this might make people think wow you know it's all very incremental you know new screen new color new you know aluminum steel whatever right <laughs> uh, slightly longer battery but that's the beauty of the Apple business right now, right? The beauty of the business is, if you think about the install base, the install base of iPhones alone are over a billion. Mm. Typically people, let's say people keep them for four to five years. If you assume four years, you're looking at 250 million units that need replacement, right? So somebody on an iPhone 8 or 8S or whatever it is, is probably gonna look to upgrade, right? And the 13 is just gonna be fine for them. Somebody's going to get the iPhone mini because they like the smaller, you know, they don't want the bigger phone. They're going to get the iPhone 13 mini. So they're going to make, they're going to sell 250 million odd just, just because of the replacement cycle. And then they're going to probably sell some to switchers, right? So you know, it, they're easily going to be selling somewhere in that range. That's, that's for most businesses that will be like, okay, they will take that or they will take one tenth of that any day. Right. So, so, so that's great. Then there's all these things, you know, they showed like, oh, Tom Hanks and John Stewart is coming back to Apple TV plus. Why is Apple doing Apple TV plus? Well, the answer to the question, why shouldn't Apple do Apple TV plus? 
And the reason I say that is important is think about watch, right? When the Apple Watch came out, Fitbit was ruling the world. Mm. Today, Fitbit is a small peg in the big hole called Google, uh, <laughs> right? And it almost died if, had, had it not been acquired by Google. So the thing is that when Apple goes into something and it can succeed, it can actually, you know, basically be the winner, even if it's starting second or, you know, starting later because it has that ability. So TV Plus, again, you know, it's worthwhile for them to pump and, you know, have their strategy and iterate over that strategy. And if they win... Or if they, if they do well, A, that's going to help other people get into the ecosystem. B, it's going to be bad news for standalone streaming services, right? You know, I wouldn't want to be a Netflix if Apple is successful, right? Because, you know, Netflix has to worry about churn and net ads. Apple doesn't because it doesn't even have to talk about it, right? It's a sideshow for them until it is no longer a sideshow, in which case they're going to talk about it. Oh, you know, uh, this business is a $10 billion business growing at, you know, 50%, like they talk about uh, wearables. So I think that's the beauty of Apple. And at some point, they're going to release something with AR, VR, uh, you know, that'll be the new shiny gadget. So I think, you know, it's, it's a great steady business that what people think is not innovating, but is, you know, innovates in spurts, which... It's probably just fine because you know they have things behind the curtain that they're working on. So it's interesting, right? I, I think as yeah, and obviously we're kind of syncing the same book. One of these days I'm gonna play devil's advocate on the show. But I've noticed that since getting the watch and obviously had the phone for years, I still wasn't truly in the Apple ecosystem. I still hadn't got a subscription. I think I had like the one dollar fifty a month iCloud subscription just because I needed it for photos or something. But now that I've got the watch, it's so much easier to use the watch with Apple Music rather than the other apps. Like I used Google Music on my phone. And so that didn't really go on here. So, you know, we all know this about captured audiences, but now I'm even further, even not just in the, the hardware space, but in the software space, I'm further into the ecosystem. And so then you're like, okay, now I've, you, you came up with a personal finance hack not too long ago on the show, which was consolidate your subscriptions. So then why wouldn't I get the Apple One subscription, you know, and bundle it all together? Yeah. And so, yeah, and this, I think that's what a lot of people underestimate, to be honest. I think people still underestimate that. I think a lot of people underestimated the switch from the switch from hardware to software, but I don't know. I feel like it was almost too obvious. But I, don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's a great business. I think, um, again, underestimated for lots of reasons, but yeah, I find it's still a great business. And it's still very innovative. It's just because they don't talk about stuff like other companies. Other companies talk about stuff that they haven't yet completed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Tesla would say, we are, you know, we are doing self-driving, but, you know, they're basically iterating over self-driving, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Google would talk about various things as there are demo things, right? Apple never talks about a demo. Basically, they don't have a demo product. They have a product that is ready for the market, and then they show it to the market. So that's the difference, I think. Uh, mm. between Apple and many others. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, happy Friday, folks, says Mark on YouTube. Well, happy Friday to you too, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Um, so the other thing that is a bit of an interesting one this week um, is a company by the name of IntelliHR released, um, a, a ca- announced a capital raising, uh, which is at the smaller end of the spectrum in terms of market cap. So uh, where I'll get the exact market cap up. Da, da, da. $73 million is IntelliHR. <clears throat> it does um, software for HR departments, 
but it principally does them for the medium-sized enterprise. So um, from my understanding of the business, they charge a subscription fee, but also an upfront kind of implementation fee, which a lot of these do. We actually test drove quite a few of these HR software you know, uh, platforms, and it was easy to see why organizations, medium to large organizations, choose IntelliHR over some of the other ones in the market. And one of the big reasons is the ability to basically automate everything. So they all do that, but IntelliHR has an ability to automate everything down to basically like sentiment and get an idea of hotspots in organizations and just really be efficient in terms of analytics, which is probably a cut above all the competition. So IntelliHR is a really interesting business, um, but what they actually did in the in the past week is they announced a capital raising of a total of $11.5 million as a placement. And they did it at 23 cents per share. And one of the things that I always like to do, I don't know if you do this, maybe it's a more Australian centric thing, um, is I like to, to forward, um, like to jump forward to the, the section where it's got at the what discount it was done at. So it says here in the, the, um, the announcement, it says IntelliHR will issue approximately 50 million new shares to raise new capital of 11.5 million Aussie at an issue price of 23 cents per share. In addition, 6.5 million existing shares of $1.5 million worth will be divested by the managing director, Robert Bramage, at the same price as the placement to fund the purchase of a residential property. But then the placement price represents a 20.7% discount to the last close price and a 17.2% discount to the 30-day VWAP, so um, volume-weighted average price. So a 17% discount. I guess the hard thing is that Unless shareholders like retail shareholders like us, for example, are invited to join, it actually has a dilutionary impact on the business. And that kind of leaves a big sour taste in my mouth. Um, I think you've talked about this at length, but you know, ideally we want to see companies do more in terms of being all like shareholder friendly. We are like we understand that. It's cheaper for these companies to do institutional placements. It's quicker, uh-huh. it's cheaper, but at the same time, if you own the, the local bakery and the guy who owns most of the shares announced, oh, we're just going to go down to Jeffrey down the street here and he's going to buy 20% of the company, um, that's it. You wouldn't be very happy. And so, I mean, IntelliHR relies on, my understanding is it relies on effective capital markets basically to help it grow. And I just, I just find it a little bit concerning, right, that you have this company that says it's growing very fast, it's got high retention rates and all this sort of stuff, but then it needs to go and issue a lot of shares and do it in a way that kind of leaves a sour taste in your mouth. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but yeah. So a couple of quick ones. So I think if you're a high growth company, then I think a couple of things. I have an issue with repeatedly coming back to the market. You know, I'm going to get 10 million now, 15 million, you know, in a in 10 months time, another 10 million in, you know, 20 months time. I'm not a big fan of that, which basically means that you're never really self-sustaining, right? You, you're always looking for acquisitions or things like that. You're something to bolster your position. Not a big fan of that. I'd rather company do 
some big ones and just get it out of the way. But maybe mm-hmm. the size is just so small right now that that's hard, right? Uh, on the on the you know on the on the share uh, placement thing, yeah, I have, it, there's another way. I've always had this, you know, when I was looking at ASX small caps, I had this view that actually, if it was up to me, I would never do SPPs or share placement plans, or yeah. um, I'd actually get rid of them completely, because I think it's in the long run it's detrimental to the retail investor, and I can explain why I think that. So the problem is that if we, if there are so many retail investors, we're going to give each one of them an equal opportunity. Therefore, you have to give them do some rights issue. Right? So a lot of companies do rights issues based on how many shares mm-hmm. you have. That's the fairest way to do it. But sometimes fair, you know, fair is not necessarily great in the <laughs> long run because what it means is well, the company now is subject to the impact that other people actually have the cash to deliver the cash, and if they can't deliver the cash, then they're short. <laughs> right? Then they need an underwriter for the short part, right? It just complicates the whole process. Whereas I think if you can do a good placement, so if you can bring a good partner, for example, and you sell all the shares to that partner, your shares are likely to take off because that partner's investment likely boosts the confidence of the market, which in, in effect means that the entire shareholder base actually came out ahead, right? So I think you know there are some ways of doing it. Um, I'm not. I'm just not sure whether giving everyone the opportunity is actually great. In the sense, it just complicates the process, takes longer. Um, I've never, like as, as an example, you know, Tesla has done a number of you know what they call add the money uh, ATMs, right? So they basically just print some shares and sell them, and brokers basically are buying them and selling them to whoever, right? I never get to participate in them, but I think they're great because you know if they're done at the right price in a liquid market, it actually doesn't, you know, I don't get this, you know, my shares are now no longer down by 23%, right? Mm-hmm. Probably happens and, you know, nobody notices it and we're, yeah, we're done. Um, so I think, you know, I, you can make an argument either way. And this is just for the heck of making an argument. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, uh, but I think the bigger point would be that you want the dilution to work in your favor, right? I mean, if the share count increases by 300% over a period of say five years, you do want the earnings to grow at a much higher pace or the mm. revenues to at least grow at a much higher pace. I think that's the bottom line, right? If the earnings grew by 1,000%, revenue grew by 1,000% and the share count went up by 300%, it probably is okay, not a problem, right? So mm. do you, so you, you, you would say that then less, fewer distractions for the management team, capital raise as institutional or, or whatever. And you can always, as a retail shareholder, you can just buy more shares on the market. That's what I would say, because, you know, think about it, right? $70 million market cap company, you know, it's rough. Right? I mean, they have to have, comp- I mean, the compliance is going to cost them a lot of money anyways up front, right? I mean, just complying with the SX rules, making sure that they're in compliance, mm-hmm. sending all these, you know, four Cs. This is like, that's a lot of work. Now, on top of that, they have to also now make sure that they get the money and they get it from everyone. It's just hard, I think. So mm. I'm a little, I'm okay. I'm, I'm all about intelligent. If you can do, like, I think a strategic investor and things like that. Okay, so I'll say what I don't, didn't like about what I heard. I didn't like the fact that one of the key stakeholders is actually selling their shares mm. <laughs> while they're raising that kind of money in the market, right? That doesn't give me that kind of confidence. But again, there is a good reason behind it that, you know, I want to buy a house, which is a pretty legitimate reason, but yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, 
I think it's more, for me, it's long time been a principal thing too because um, for such a long time, financial markets have kind of thrown away with the, the retail investor um, or done away with them and at their expense, which, as you say, you know, logically it probably makes sense to um, to make it as, as efficient as possible and then let them buy on market. But the opportunity, at least if you do, say, $10 million as an insto placement and then you have $1.5 million with an SPP that's underwritten, um, there's not that much to lose because, it, you know, a lead manager of that ilk shouldn't be two-faced about $1.5 million um, through their network or through their own accounts. So I, I get where you're coming from. I guess the thing is, too, it costs money. So... Um, and every time they go to the market, it costs money. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot to there's a lot to like about Intelli. Um, from what you know, there's some great write-ups. I think Claude from a Rich Life just did one as well, which um, you can head to richlife.com.au to find out more. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a it's interesting business to keep an eye on. It's still it says it's growing really fast in terms of organic growth. Um, it's growing overseas as well. So interesting business, pretty competitive market. Um, but yeah. Just a, just a capital raising, I thought I'd get your insights on it, so good to know. Um, there is some talking points that we have here uh, before we get to some questions maybe, which was the, I, I wanted to, um, you, you you mentioned you wanted to talk about a topic, which is interesting, which is. But, but, um, but what we could do in the interest of time, though, we could pick hmm. maybe only one of the topics, right? And then we could answer okay. the questions because the questions probably okay. are important. Well, what do you think? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Um, Okay, let's let's just you. say let's let's save the one that um, we've got about pickers pick, picking winners in industries. Maybe we'll do that one next week. Mm-hmm. Maybe this week this would be a bit of fun. Um, so I, I challenged you before we came on air, and I wrote it in our notes here. I said if you could pick only three factors, whether they're stock ratios, numbers, profit lines. You know, I know you're a big fan of dollar-based net retention checklists you know if you have a checklist for your investing to build a stock portfolio you can only pick three mm-hmm. which three factors would you use to build your portfolio and why yeah this is, this is a tough one right mm-hmm. um maybe maybe we we'll do one eight at a time so you go i go you go i go you go okay okay maximum right. we'll say maximum 90 seconds on each one for the interest okay. of time well so, so the number one is i look at revenue growth actually yeah well, okay. actually, can I take that back? I'll make it. So, I'll, I'll rewind that. I'll actually look at gross profit growth. Ooh, gross profit and, growth. Okay. Yeah, so the growth of gross profit over time. Okay. That'll be yep. my number one metric that I'd look at. And, I'll, and you're looking I'll at absolute dollars? Well, just the growth rate. Yeah, the absolute dollars and the growth rate, but I'm looking at the growth rate. So I want that growth rate to be high. And yeah, I mean, the problem with the absolute dollar is that you'd want to look at that relative to something else, mm-hmm. right? Because of because the question says you can only look at one. <laughs> I'm looking at the rate. Okay. <laughs> so the, deriv- the derivative product. <laughs> okay. I did have one in here, but I'm actually going to change it now that I, I was actually inspired by that a little bit. The f- what I'm what I'm going to talk about is gross margin as a percentage. And the reason that I'm choosing that first up is because typically the gross margin is a stronger signal for growth businesses that can become extremely free cash flow positive in the future. 
So maybe not now, maybe not next year, but if you have a gross margin that's very wide and sustainably wide, what you actually, the way I think about it anyway, is that if you look at an income statement, the gross profit margin takes out the cost of goods sold. The way I think about those are the unavoidable costs. So if we've got a wide margin after unavoidable costs, Typically, the other stuff that's further down is not necessarily 100% variable, but a lot of it is variable. That it, those expenses like marketing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's further down. So the gross margin is probably the one that I would take first as a percentage. So I don't mean to copy you. I think we're going to have a few differences now, but I'll throw it back to you for number two. Okay. So the next thing I look at, so I'm looking at gross profit growth. I look at the basically the operating expenditure growth as well. Um, and here... You know, just to make it simple, I would just look at you know sales and marketing. So I'd, I'd actually remove GNA really. Just look at sales and marketing, and capex really, and R and D, and so you know basically basically all the other costs minus I guess the GNA. You could include the GNA because GNA is going to be like a small percentage. So I just look at the growth of that. Okay, and it, it so for US companies, we often see a lot of R and D. Are you Looking at that line item within operating expenditure? No. So, so basically, what I'm trying to look for is I'm just trying to look at whether the gross profit is growing faster uh, than the operating expenses, effectively. And I want to see that. Basically, I'm looking for operating leverage. So, if there's operating leverage, I could have just said that I'm looking for operating leverage. But okay, um, yeah. So, I want to see the 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 opex grow as well because well, you can you can invest zero into the business and that's fine but then your business is eventually not going to grow, but you want that number to grow, but you want to grow it, grow it at a pace that is slower than the gross profit growth. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So you're looking for what I think in Australia, the banking CEOs call it JAWS. Um, <laughs> that was what they called it five years ago. Anyway, I don't know if they still call it that, but they basically want expenses to stay down by making redundancies. We'll do this on a normalized basis and we'll try and lend more to get more interest income. That's basically what I was trying to say. Okay, so I'm going to jump from gross profit margin. Um, I'm going to drop straight down to the cash flow statement, statement number four in the annual report for most companies and for all companies. And I'm going to look at free cash flow. We did a quick kind of put your thumb on it. I think it was last week or the week before where we just took um, operating cash flow net operating cash flow or net cash, or net cash flows from operations. Um, and then you take away any CapEx on the income, on the cash flow statement. So things like property, plan and equipment, uh, maybe even investment in intangibles. And even, and this is a shout out to Lachlan, um, who's on Twitter, probably watching this, um, which is uh, leases, the new accounting standards brings in leases. So you might want to look at some of the leases there as well to determine if you believe, um, you know, if those are going to be recurring subtract them. Now, fully aware that most companies in the early stage of growth won't be free cash flow positive, but it's just about seeing how that, that metric is shaking out. I think for anything that's like medium stage or um, you know past startup, maybe into scale up, you want to see that free cash flow level um, closing over time towards zero, towards break even, and then becoming positive very quickly, quicker than revenue. So um, free cash flow would be my number two. Alrighty. Okay. I like that. Um, 
Yeah, actually, thus far we are very similar. We're looking at different metrics, <laughs> kind of similar <laughs> metrics. Okay, the last thing I'd look at is just the, just the absolute increase in share count <laughs> over time. Uh, and this has caught me out a number of times. You know, everything looks good except that the share count is also growing. So the market cap keeps growing, but my share price does not actually grow. So I look at share count. Yeah, and do you tend to look at that over? Three years, five years? Are you looking at over just, as long as possible? Or? Yeah, no, I just touch eyeball. So, like, of course, when a company is before IPO, the share count is low. Then the IPO, there's, you know, the share count is sometimes doubles, triples, whatever, right? And then, you know, there are secondaries and things like that. There are placements that happen, right? You just, I just want to look at the general cadence. Like, I don't want to be in a place where, you know, we just talked about IntelliHR, right? I mean, you know, if you keep adding a lot of shares, then you better really have very high, you know, gross profit growth, right? Otherwise, mm. you're going to be, you know, if you dilute by 10%, you better have 30, 40, 50% growth in the gross profit um, area. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, not, not, you're not going to be in trouble. You're going to have a large empire. It's just the shareholders are not going to make enough money. So, mm. Yeah, I think it's hard because we've only got three. They've given us an artificial limit of three factors to consider. I but, like um, it. Yeah, it's, it forces us to have conviction. I know in some fund, um, in some fund manager stock pitches, what they force analysts to do is only have a buyer or sell rating, even though that's not a you know perfect world. It's just to force them to have an opinion on something and to show conviction one way or the other. You know that would just be behind closed doors, and this is not necessarily something they invest in. Um, for investors, but it's just an interesting way to kind of see what's important to people. Okay, so my number three, which is similar to yours, is I've gone from the income statement to the cash flow statement. Now I'm going to the balance sheet and I'm going to look at cash versus debt, just in absolute terms, the amount of cash versus the amount of debt. And this is similar to yours because if a company is growing, you want to know how it's funding that. So what cash versus debt tells you, it's such a simple thing. Just look at the top of the balance sheet and then go down about two-thirds of the way down for the interest-bearing debt or whatever you want to call it. But what, what it shows you is basically the, the financial leverage but also the legacy of capital allocation. So if a company has a lot of debt today, why did it choose to use debt? You want to go and find the answer to that or... Why did it choose debt over cash? Does it not have enough cash? Or, and then that leads on to your point about share count. But um, you know, a, a good way to think about this, would just, and we've brought this up before, um, is just to look at a company like CSL. It's got lots of debt today. 10 years ago, it had bugger all. And so why does it have so much debt today? And you then maybe you can trace that back to incentives and, and whatever. But that would probably be a very simple metric. And on the, you know, that's kind of like the, the risk the risk offside on the risk on side, what actually a good cash balance does, Apple's a good example, it's got lots of debt, but it's got lots of cash, is you can have optionality in your business because the balance sheet gives you flexibility. Facebook has this, all the big names has this. You know, I love this one. I, you know, I'm just, you know, I was going to pound my table saying I didn't think about this because this is something I have been complaining about a lot. Um, you know, this is a great example, right? So you said Apple. Um, we had a bunch of businesses here on the ASX that had to raise cash. So a great example is Cochlear. Cochlear had to raise cash. It had mm. to go to the market to pay a fine. 
<laughs> that is the most bizarre thing that I've seen. The other bizarre thing that I've seen is NAB goes to the market to raise cash so that it can pay dividend. That is completely bizarre. Uh, and then the other, you know, okay, these, you know, in these two cases, I guess the market has been forgiving. So the stock didn't take a pounding and there were enough buyers out there to offer, to take up the shares so that they could pay the fine and they could pay the dividend. But guess what happened to uh, Flight Center, right? And Webjet. Yeah. So if you run a business on too low a cash balance, and you know you can, you, this is called like hyper optimization, right? And I'm going to pay the dividends out with franking and hallelujah, everybody's going to be happy, right? Well, when the ones in a millennium something strikes, you are going to be toast. You're going to be in a really hard place. Uh, a company like Booking.com didn't have any problems. They went to the debt market, raised debt at effectively zero interest rates because they had billions of cash, you know, tens of billions of dollars of cash on the, on the, on the book. And I think, you know, the coronavirus uh, situation really gave me another sort of eye-opening, um, mm. you know, examples of eye-opening examples of just how important cash is. And it might seem like the cash is sitting there doing nothing, but gosh, you know, if you can close your shop and still nothing happens to your shop, <laughs> that is a good position to be in. That's the business I want to own uh, mm. because, you know, hey, that's just, that's just safety. Mm, for sure it is. And it's probably one that for all of our complicated theories and models and strategies and formulas, just the humble, how much cash is in the bank is such a powerful thing. Uh, and it's still just so important to so many companies. Um, yeah. Okay, so, so, so just just so okay. to, just to make this quick, right? So in the big travel companies, right? So Web, uh, Webjet raised money, Flight Center raised money, uh, but you know, um, corporate travel's position was slightly better, so they didn't have to be as dilutive in their in, in to go to the market, right? And and a, and a small company called Circle, you know, they they had good, they had the backing of Booking and things like that, so they basically just navigated this okay, they didn't have much of a problem really, right? So I think it's interesting how cash can be or may not be, you know, um, useful, but in, in most instances, they're really like the lifesaver. Mm, absolutely. Um, okay, so we've just got some questions come through. Um, we've got one from Mark, uh, which we'll try and tackle really quickly. And Mark says, this is great, folks, would be good maybe for the next show to talk about factors for investors looking at ETFs. So factors, um, I think what... Mark might mean is maybe as in how to pick an ETF, like a checklist. Um, Mark, we've got heaps of content on this, but ETFs in a sense, um, in Australia at least, now are pretty well regulated. So um, in the past, they were kind of a new age thing, but I think the coronavirus kind of crash, if you like, proved that the, the under the, the market making and, and basically the companies that underwrite the process of an ETF are pretty pretty resilient these days. So especially from the big ETF providers, so there's like six big ones. Um, in terms of other things, just so, just some quick ones is you want to look through the ETF, go to the ETF provider's website to see what they're actually investing in because you might end up with an ETF that does international shares that's investing in the same thing as the other international shares ETF. And then all of a sudden you've got an overexposure to Apple or, or whatever. So uh, don't just look necessarily at the surface, actually look beneath the surface and see what's going on. Um, so that's a good one. And Amitesh, this might be one for you, mate. Um, with everything that's going on in China, would you be dollar cost averaging into Chinese equities or wait out on the sidelines till the volatility subsides? So we can't obviously give anyone specific advice, just full disclosure. We're just 
just chewing it and talking about investing generally. But just, I guess the question is there for Anirban, um, Chinese yeah, equities. So, yeah, so there's I there's a publicly public facing article available on some of my views on how to, so that you can, if you go to seveninvesting.com and look for um, this article, I forgot the name of it, but you know, I talked about Alibaba as an example. And so, so there's a lot of nuance here of what's going on in terms of the tech crackdown. Some of that is about market misuse. Some of that is not, necessarily targeted the way people think it is. Um, so here's the bottom line, right? Depends on how you want it. If you look at a company like Alibaba, and I'm just using Alibaba as an example, because that's the one I looked at, it is really cheap. It is like cheap. Now, the question is that can if it can maintain even some semblance of similar free cash flow growth and things like that, then it is really cheap. But, you know, if the market, because of the changes in the market, if the market becomes more competitive. So one of the cases with Alibaba, for example, was how Alibaba locked in marketplace participants. Basically, they said, well, you can be on Tmall, then you can't really be on anywhere else. So the exclusivity, right? Well, that, you know, and if you think about a marketplace, you know, the more buyers, the more sellers, this kind of can feed in, right? But from a seller's point of view, they would like to be on JD.com. They would like to be on Tmall. Mm. They would like to be in every place because you want to ex increase exposure. But that is not in Alibaba's interest. So this is just an example uh, of you know issues. And it's not that Alibaba is the only one who does exclusive things, but you know the Chinese government is basically saying you can't kind of do that. Mm. Um, so again, if you think about the competitive landscape and so on, then and if you're willing to tolerate volatility, maybe this is an. I personally don't have any China exposure right now. Um, that's just yeah, me neither. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, some of those stocks are great companies <laughs> at great prices if you believe that the long-term future. So it's really depends on you as to how, you know, and, you know, your, you know, your mm. tolerance for volatility and your views on how the market is going to shape up. Just quickly, was the article about seven or eight days ago, the China tech crackdown, is it a buying opportunity? Is that the article? Um, does it, does it talk about Alibaba and Didi? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, does it have the Great Wall of China as a picture there? Or, yeah, it does. Or, yeah. Yeah. So then, then that is the article. Yes. Yeah. Cool. There's the, the, the articles there. It'll be available in the show notes for anyone that listens to this back. But um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, I actually just spoke to Charlie Aitken, who's from Aim Funds, um, and he's been divesting China for about two years now. Although he still owns a small part of Tencent at the time of recording it, anyway. Um, so that was really interesting. And um, good question from Amitesh there. Uh, I don't have any exposure to it either, but it's just, um, it's an interesting market. And it, I fully agree with you that unless you have some special insight into how geopolitics plays out and how the CCP, you know, tackles some of the big issues with tech, uh, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, you've got to make that trade off yourself. Um, I'm quite comfortable, to be honest, having Australian equities and, and US equities that may or may not have some indirect exposure to China. And they can manage that on a case-by-case -case basis. But for me, um, yeah, I just don't need to. So I'm not in a rush necessarily. Um, so, so just quickly to, to, to Owen's point, I think, you know, if you if you buy like a consumer goods company, typically they would have China exposure. So that, I mean, you know, if you're buying, for example, I don't know, if you, Treasury Wine used to have China exposure until they didn't. But yep. You know, A2 milk used to have a lot of China, so it has a lot of China exposure. So you could, you know, those are examples. If you have Nike, you know, people are wearing Nike shoes in China. So you'd have a lot of China exposure indirectly. That's a great point, actually, something to keep in mind. The, the world famous Apple also has exposure to China and actually is growing very quickly there as of the last quarter. So, um, yeah, 
we all know what happens though when you don't you still need to pick good quality companies if you do this because as we know a2 milk not to say it's a bad quality company maybe that's the wrong introduction to this segue segue to this company but it's down 67 percent in a year um so you know, Wait for it to get acquired. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the other side, we've got Treasury Wines, which has divested its Chinese business or just discontinued it, we should say. And now it's up 35% in a year. So, I mean, yeah, it, it can ebb and flow. And that's probably your, your trade-off. You know, you've got to make that assessment yourself. Maybe in the next 12 months, it's the opposite direction. But it's a pretty complicated situation right now, at least geopolitically. So, um, personally, I don't have any special insight there. Okay, so we'll just come to the closing remarks here, mate. I've just got a personal finance hack that I can just throw out there, which is something that I talked about to uh, with mortgage broker Chris Bates and, and Kate Campbell on the Australian Finance Podcast this week, which is basically just using equity to um, use that to buy into the stock market. So a lot of people don't know that if you have a lot of equity in your house, you can't just have a little bit, you need a lot of equity in your house because the banks adjust it based on what is reasonable for the, the current value of the house, you can typically only borrow up to say 80% um, loan to value ratio. So you have to have less than that in order to get any equity out to then invest in the stock market. But you can do that. Um, people don't really think about that. Some people weigh up selling a house to then go invest in the stock market, but then you have to rent. Um, and then you have you would want to compare that to the interest cost of you know, having your mortgage. Um, so obviously there are risks involved with using leverage to buy shares, but and we would uh, personally I would never advocate for things like margin lending or anything like that. But if you are going to use any form of debt, a line of credit against a home is often the cheapest form. So that's something you can talk to your financial advisor about. And it's a personal finance hack um, that I can that I can bring out today. I actually had a bit of a rave and a rant about this on Twitter the other day. How much money has been soaked up by my housemate, um, as in my house and. I'm saying that to you, my house, uh, how much money has been thrown into it. And I'm sure it's gone up in value. But um, when you see the performance of some of your investments in the stock market, you think, wait, do I, what's going on upstairs here? Is this, do I need to rewire something? <laughs> no, I don't want to turn this podcast into another hour long. But, you know, oh, that's yeah. my biggest, biggest rant has always been that property doesn't have to be that expensive because property being expensive means it just takes away from everything else. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, it takes away from your spending. It takes away from your investing in the stock market. Uh, for what? An asset that, you know, <laughs> you're going to live in <laughs> until you, mm. hopefully, or at some point you die and then somebody else gets the money. Right? It's kind of <laughs> not very useful. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. That's a fa- fair enough. Um, okay. So we just, we did actually have a question earlier on about Sen- Sent- Sentinel-1. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that company, mate, or if you can share anything, but that was... I have NYSE. never looked at it, so... Yeah, yeah. So NYSCS, maybe next week we can have a look at that one um, for you, Armitesh. But the other one was Life360, which is an Australian business that... Well, not Australian business, but it's a, involved in kind of... How do I put this? Uh, parents download the app and they can track their children. Um, and then there's a whole range of applications that are now being bolted into that ecosystem. It was made famous by um, some TikTok remarks. Um, so basically it went famous for all the reasons that you wouldn't want your company to go famous for, but then that spurred on heaps of use, which brought down the customer acquisition cost. Um, it's a really interesting business transitioning its um, revenue models uh, in terms of different packages and the like. Um, a lot of competition in the space, but it definitely seems to be one of the biggest players. Um, so interesting business, Life360 is on the ASX under the ticket code 360. 
Um, if you have anything to share with us, Amitesh, happy for you to just write into us and just tell us what you like about it and maybe we can respond to you next week on the show. Um, but yeah, Sentinel-1, it's the first I've heard of it too, so apologies we can't give you any more information there. All right, mate, this is our first live session. Pr- pretty good, I would say. I'd give us a 7 out of 10. I think we can do better, but it was probably my fault. Well, we'll take more than that. I think it was pretty smooth. But it was pretty smooth. Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 we handled some questions. I think that calls for like eight and a half, nine. It's the weekend. Ooh, Come on. You, okay. you yeah. can't give a Yeah, I don't want to end the weekend on, uh, on a Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, okay. Yeah, this it's, this it's is a nine. It's a nine. Yeah. Um, so Mark asks, when is the next one? Well, Mark, jump on Twitter and say good day to us. Um, we've got at 7A Mahanti. That's Anirban's handle. Mine is at Owen Rask. Um, jump on there, follow us on Twitter, and we'll tell you when the next one's out. We typically release the podcast on a Saturday morning Australian time, and we record it sometime during the week. This is the first one that we've recorded live. Um, so it's once a week, Mark, and you can you can say day on Twitter to, to ask us your questions and see what we're up to. It's and contingent I, on my willingness to put on a shirt. Yes, yes, we're all in lockdown. Um, so... You definitely got more dressed up than I did. I'm in Mickey Mouse, but I mean, that's... Okay. Mickey, Mickey Mouse is fine. Mickey Mouse is great. We could have talked about Disney or anything, so it, yeah. I guess it makes sense. Um, if people want to find out more about what you're doing, like that that article on um, China or even the, the report you released last fortnight, where would they go to find that, man? Just go to uh, 7investing.com. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's public-facing, podcasts, articles. There's some stuff that's uh, behind the paywall, of course, like things like recommendations and so on. Um, if you want to subscribe, mm. you don't have to, but you want to. If you're interested, then you just hit, you know, 7investing.com forward slash subscribe. Use the RAS code, get $10 off. Mm-hmm. As I say, you don't have to uh, if, you, if you're not into it. But yeah, there's a lot of, lot of good stuff out there that we put out just for educational purposes that, you know, mm. podcasts, yeah. things like that, articles. Yeah. I um, I still haven't listened to this this the interview with Rocket Lab founder um, Peter oh, yeah. Beck. That, but, uh, please, mm-hmm. <laughs> people should. That's yeah. a good one to listen to. Yeah. I just put a link in the, uh, the, the comments on YouTube. If you are, if you are watching us on, on YouTube or if you're not watching us on YouTube, keep an eye on our Twitter accounts because if we do this again, we want to see you there. Today was a test run for us just to get a handle on it. But um, yeah, you'll find all the details to join 7 Investing um, in the in this episode description, no matter where you are. And you can find more uh, about what we're doing at RASC and the Rockets programs at www.rask.com.au. And you'll see a tab there that says subscriptions if you want to join. Wonderful, mate. Absolute pleasure as always. Well, the pleasure is always mine. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. <laughs> 
Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.